Hi, and welcome to the Yom Kippur Podcast by Rabbi Rabinowitz, hosted by the Jacksonville Kolo. Last time we spoke about the Seudas Hamafsekas, the last meal that one has before Yom Kippur, and uh, then we had uh, someone going to Shul. On Yom Kippur, there are five things that we do to, uh, quote-unquote, make us suffer a little bit. They're known as the Chameshes Inuyim, which means the five things that we do to cause a little bit of affliction. The first one is no eating, no drinking. That one, everyone knows that's how we that's how we define fasting, no eating and no drinking. There are certain exceptions to that rule. I mean, not really. Obviously, we don't eat and we don't drink on Yom Kippur. Um, however, halachically, it's not really called eating or drinking unless you've had a certain amount. Now, when I say halachically, that was not precise. Let me try that again. Biblically, interestingly, the Torah does not say, thou shall not eat on Yom Kippur. Because if it said, thou shall not eat, so then we always define eating as a kezais, an olive-sized amount. So therefore, we would say that if you ate an olive-sized amount, then it's problematic. If you ate anything less than that, biblically, it might be okay, but rabbinically, we wouldn't allow it. Interestingly, the Torah says, which means you should afflict your souls. Now, I might have thought that uh, afflicting souls is actually, if you eat even less than an olive-sized amount, then you're no longer afflicting yourself. But actually, that's wrong. And uh, it says that even after one ate a kezayis, they haven't done enough to fully satisfy themselves to the point that we would say that they're no longer being afflicted, and the opposite is true. They are still being afflicted. And therefore, it's larger than an outsized amount, not by much, but the amount of a dried date. The amount of a dried date is considered to be the amount that you would be no longer afflicting yourself. As such, biblically, if one went and ate anything less than an olive, uh, than, the, than a dried date, rather, or drank um, the same volume, so then they would not have been considered to break, breaking their fast. Now, obviously, rabbinically, we don't allow that, and even one small drop or one small crumb is a problem. The reason why it becomes relevant is because if somebody finds that uh, they're not healthy enough to be able to fast, so then it becomes a very tricky situation, which basically you have to talk to your local Orthodox rabbi, um, but you better make sure that you have the medical facts so that you can present it to him so that he's able to answer the question correctly. But basically, just on a broad level, to understand what would be going on when you talk to the rabbi. If somebody is not able to fast, period, so then we would say, okay, fine. If you can't fast on Yom Kippur, you can't fast on Yom Kippur. Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach records uh, that there were two big tzaddikim, he doesn't say who they were, that were unfortunately not able to fast on Yom Kippur. One of them went to the doctor, the doctor explained to him the situation, he told him he can't fast on Yom Kippur, and he burst out in tears and he cried. He couldn't imagine he's not going to fast on Yom Kippur. Another another one, he uh, heard the news and he said, no, no, okay, the same God that normally wants me to fast on Yom Kippur, this year wants me to eat on Yom Kippur. And Shom Zalman Arbach recorded that he, be- he believed that that is the correct attitude that one should have. In other words, if uh, Hashem made it that you're not healthy, so you're not healthy and you, and you can't fast. But your eating would be your way of serving Hashem so that you'll have the strength and God willing you'll uh, have a refuah shlema you'll get healed, and next year, Yom Kippur, you'll be able to 
you'll be able to fast. And if not, then at least, okay, you'll live and you'll be able to do other mitzvahs. But if somebody uh, would put their, themselves in danger, so then they would lose out on many other opportunities. And Yom Kippur is not that important that you should give over, you should give, you should give away your life for it, God forbid. So, but what happens though if somebody is not that sick? In other words, what do I mean to say? So, if they could eat a little bit here and a little bit there, and they would be able to survive, so then technically that would still be called that they were fasting. Because you have to eat, like I said, the size of a dry date. But more, but more importantly, is that it has to be within a certain time frame. And uh, we're, we say that the most, most lenient opinion, or strict opinion, depending on how you're looking at it, would be nine minutes. So therefore, if somebody had less than a dried date, or the volume of a dried date, every nine minutes, so then that would, they would still be having, they would still be considered to have not broken their fast. So therefore, sometimes you have a situation where somebody, let's say, is pregnant, and it would be dangerous for the pregnancy. So they give them like a shot glass that's about an ounce, and uh, that's considered to be like the size of a dry date, or just under that. And they say, okay, every nine minutes, drink one shot glass of water. Now, that sounds a little bit uh, absurd, but it's a way for them to, while it's true that rabbinically they have broken Yom Kippur, but on a biblical level, they have not. And we would always prefer, if we can, depending on the situation, we would always prefer to minimize the desecration. So, it's true that the rabbis came, the rabbis put up a fence, and the rabbis said, don't have even every nine minutes, because who knows, eventually you'll just be hungry, you'll do more, you'll break your fast, whatever the reason may be. But, nevertheless, in a case like this, where it's an extenuating circumstance, where the person's not healthy, and there's basically two choices in front of him. Choice number one, break his fast. Choice number two, fast in a way that the Torah would view like you're still fasting, even though the rabbis would view like you're not fasting. In a case like that, we would tell the person very often that he should only have a little bit every nine minutes. So, yes, it's a little bit complicated, but... Just that's the idea behind this idea of having what's called less than a shear, less than the amount that would be considered to be breaking your fast. So that's the first one. The first one is no eating and no drinking. The next one is no leather shoes. Now, as far as uh, leather shoes go, so it's interesting because originally that's what was considered to be comfort. Uh, comfort was wearing leather shoes. So by not wearing leather shoes, you're actually suffering a little bit. Today, uh, I know that I get very excited that I get to wear my Crocs to show and I get to be more comfortable. So this is actually a big debate um, whether or not that's correct. Uh, there are those that believe that on Yom Kippur one should not wear Crocs. Uh, it, would be, it would be inappropriate. And uh, the idea was that you're supposed to feel the, uh, you're supposed to feel the hardness of the ground. And uh, if and that's why the original decree was not to wear shoes. But if you're wearing a substitute for shoes that also uh, makes sure that you don't feel the hardness of the ground, then that would not be okay. So the common practice, though, is that people do wear Crocs. They do all, or they do wear all forms of slippers as long as the shoes are not leather. This is a halacha which is specific to shoes. In other words, there's nothing wrong with wearing a suede kippah. There's nothing wrong with wearing a leather belt or a leather jacket, or a leather skirt, whatever the case may be. It's specific to shoes because of the fact that it had to do with comfort. The next one is known as sicha. Sicha is some type of smearing or anointing. Uh, lotions are probably going to be a problem anyway, because Yom Kippur has all of the same halachos as Shabbos does. And on Shabbos, you're usually not allowed to smear. 
any type of lotion into your skin. So that would be a problem on Yom Kippur, nothing to do with the suffering aspect, just because it would be a violation of, of Shabbos. But some type of oil, some type of oil to take an oil and, uh, and uh, rub it onto your skin would, in fact, uh, would be, be, be a violation of this. I'm not sure exactly what they were doing in the olden days that this was such a common thing, but I guess some type of, uh, of uh, taking oil and rubbing it onto you. There are those that actually have the opinion that uh, an aerosol can of deodorant would also fall under that category. I'm not sure if everyone agrees, if everyone agrees with that, but uh, I know that uh, my rabbi told us uh, that, that, that he was of the opinion that using an aerosol can of deodorant on Yom Kippur would also fall under that idea of, of uh, anointing or smearing. Now, the next one is washing. This is very often uh, not quoted 100% correctly. I always correct my students. I say to them, what's the next one? And they say, you're only allowed to wash until your knuckles. Now, that's not really true. You're not allowed to wash at all. However, there are certain situations where you are allowed to wash. And in those cases, so like, for example, when somebody wakes up in the morning and they wash a nagel vasa, they wash an atilas yadayim in the morning, so then we tell you to wash until your knuckles. But let's say you just want to wash your hands because you feel like it. So if you just want to wash your hands because you feel like it, so then that's a problem. Um, and you're not allowed, or you want to cool off or something like that, then that's a problem. And even up to the knuckles would also be a problem. So just to be clear... Uh, when we say not to wash, not to wash means not to wash your hands, period. However, there are certain situations where it's permitted. So, for example, somebody wakes up in the morning, there's a mitzvah to wash netil asyadayim, either um, three times on each hand or four times on each hand, depending on your custom, and then we only do it until the knuckles. Which knuckles are we talking about? So we're talking about, if you're looking at the top of your fingers, the very last set of, the very last set of knuckles. Um, the ones that are right, I guess, uh, how would you call it, by your palm. Uh, those are the knuckles that we're referring to. And uh, so, so when you wash your hands, you wash until there. I always find uh, that what works easiest for me is that if you hold your hands in a downward motion, uh, your fingers pointing towards the sink, and then you pour, so then you could start the pouring where it's basically starting at the knuckles and it'll roll down your fingers. I don't know, for me that seems to be the most effective. Of Otherwise it drips a little bit past the knuckles, which is not the end of the world, but uh, that's what we try. We try to only go until the knuckles and not further than that. Everyone always wants to know what happens if I go to the bathroom. So if there's some reason why you're feeling unclean, like, for example, you went to the bathroom, so then yes, you would be permitted to watch even past the knuckles, even the entire hand, if you're doing it for hygienic reasons and not for some reason of pleasure. Now, when we teach children, so we teach them that there's five, and the five are no eating, no drinking, that's one and two, and then the the oil would be three, the shoes are four, and the washing five. However, being that this podcast is geared for adults, so the, actually that's not how it works. Eating and drinking only counts as one. So what is the fifth one? So the fifth one is known as Tashmi Shamita. Tashmi Shamita is marital relations between a husband and wife. Now, that's exactly how it sounds. However, it does go further than that also. And, um, for example, a husband and wife really should sleep in a separate bed on Yom Kippur. And um, even something like um, hugging or kissing would also be considered to be inappropriate as far as Yom Kippur goes. That's because all of this fall under the different categories of of uh, cutting back from pleasure, suffering, and therefore that's one of the things that we do also to cut back from pleasure. 
The custom is that all married men wear a kittel and a talus the entire Yom Kippur, even though normally we don't wear a talus at night, we only wear a talus during the daytime, but we start Yom Kippur wearing a talus and we wear it the entire Yom Kippur. There are many that have the custom that the very first year that somebody's married, he doesn't wear a kittel, but other than that, married men customarily do wear a kittel. Um, it has to do with purity, also because a person is buried in a kittel, so it reminds one of his Yom Hamisa, of the fact that he will die one day. The davening in Shul begins with Kol Nidre. The uh, idea behind Kol Nidre, surprisingly, has absolutely nothing to do with prayers. Uh, Kol Nidre literally means all vows, and uh, it has there a whole bunch of different languages of vows. Each one has a little bit of a nuance of what it means. Like, if you look in the translation, it'll say a cherem vow, or a konem vow, or this type of vow. Um, there's, but basically the idea behind it is like this, that any type of vow that a person might have taken, uh, whatever name it might have, uh, with its halachic significance, so it's an annulment of vows. And the reason for that is because the avera, the sin of not keeping your word when you do take a vow, is very serious. So therefore we wanted to go into Yom Kippur with all of our vows released. Now, it's so interesting that that should be how Yom Kippur begins. It's not a request for forgiveness. It's not uh, a prayer. It's just an annulment of vows. But nevertheless, everyone views Kol Nidre as so solemn. So that's fascinating. And in fact, if you're sitting there listening to Kol Nidre and Shul, and you look in the uh, Art Scroll Machzer, they have there a few explanations of why that is. That we start Yom Kippur with Kol Nidre. Customarily, we have... Uh, a bezdin. We have a court in order to know the law. So how do we do that? So you have the chazan who, who leads Kol Nidre, and then he's flanked on either side by someone holding a Sefer Torah, who are supposed to be the uh, leaders of the community, and that's how you create your bezdin. The main theme of Yom Kippur is, of course, Teshuva, which we, or one of the ways that we accomplish is through Vidui, the confession. Now we say that confession ten times over Yom Kippur. The way, how do we get to number ten? Well, normally, <clears throat> on a regular day, we have three prayers, Shachris, Mincha, and Marv. On Shabbos and on holidays, Yom Tovim, we have an extra one called Musaf. Musaf literally means added. So we have that added prayer. But on Yom Kippur, we have an added one even more than that, and that is Ni'ila, the last prayer of Yom Kippur, which we'll talk about at the end, God willing. So we have so we have five times that we dive in Shmona Esrei over Yom Kippur. In each one of those Shmona Esreis, at the end of the Shmona Esrei, we have a Vidu, Vidu, we have the long confession. Now, the way that it works is whenever the Chazan does a repetition of the Shemona Esrei, or in Maru, but there's not really a repetition, but we have all these um, prayers that we say after uh, Shemona Esrei, so we then go and the Chazan leads the entire congregation in Vidui. So Vidui, for each prayer, is said twice. Once in the silent Shemona Esrei, and once being led by the Chazan. Now, typically, many people, when they say Vidui, so they take it, they say it nice and slow, they concentrate on the words that they're saying. After all, one of the things that we confess is uh, on the sin that I said, an insincere confession. So actually, if someone goes and they say it, and they say it quickly, they don't really think about what they're saying. And they're not really paying attention. So not only is the vidui not effective, but actually it's worse because 
when you apologize insincerely, that not not only is it not effective, but also it's like a an avera. That's one of the things that we apologize for. So when people say vidui, they take it nice and slow, and uh, it's nice to look, especially um, people buy special books, or uh, in the back of the art scroll matzah, they do a great job of breaking it up phrase by phrase. So that's what people use to say the vidui, and they take it really nice and slow and think about what it is that they are actually confessing. However, when we do it with the chazan, so then we sort of have to keep pace with the chazan, that one tends to be much faster. So at Jum Kippur night, we have vidui twice, once in our silent monastery and once later on, that's led by the Chazen. It is customary when one says the vidui that they uh, tap their heart as if to show that uh, like they strayed after their heart and somehow their heart is somewhat responsible for the sins that they did. Uh, some people, they like to uh, call attention to themselves and they give their heart a really uh, loud bang each time that doesn't really accomplish much. It's not necessary. They do say that it's not important how hard you hit your heart, but rather how much your heart hurts. But not because you hit it but because you feel that it hurts. Now, there's something unique about the davening on Yom Kippur, which is when we say Shema, so normally we whisper, Baruch Shem Kivod Machsal Yeram we say Shema basically twice, once at night and once in the morning, and those two times when we say Shema, we scream out, Baruch Shem Kivod Machsal Yeram The idea behind it is that the angels in Shemaim, in the heavens, they say Baruch Shem out loud, and on Yom Kippur, we actually become elevated to such a high level that we are, in fact, like angels. And therefore, we scream Baruch Shem Kavod to be like angels. One important halacha that's actually relevant to the vidui, and that is when one says vidui, he's supposed to be, or she, he or she, one is supposed to be standing up. Now, halachically, if one is leaning against something, and that thing would be pulled away, and the person would fall down, then they're not considered to be standing. Therefore, uh, if uh, one is like leaning against a wall or something like that, so then they're not considered to be standing. Now, the reason why this is important is because when one says vidui, so they're supposed to be bent over. Now, typically, it's not very comfortable to be bent over, so one takes their hand and puts it on the chair in front of them to sort of support themselves. So, that would be a problem if you're putting too much uh, weight, too much pressure down and supporting yourself with one hand and then uh, saying the vidui with, and, and, and uh, tapping the heart with the other hand. So by supporting yourself, so then that would actually mean that you're not standing, which is a problem. So one should be careful about that when they say the vidui. It's a good idea to get a good night's sleep on Yom Kippur because you need a lot of energy for the next day. And of course, one wakes up in the morning, so then they washed their hands only to the knuckles. Chakras <coughs> has certain similarities to the Rosh Hashanah Chakras, uh, with the Chazan once again starting from his seat, uh, singing uh, Hamelach. Uh, and it's uh, also the repetition is much more than just a repetition, like we spoke about on Rosh Hashanah. There's all these extra prayers that get added to it. After Chakras is over, we have the Torah reading. The Torah reading is followed by Yizker, and then we have Musaf. Now, Musaf is not really that long, except for the fact that we do add something to make it quite long. And that is the Avodah. The Avodah literally means the service, and it describes about what the Kohen Gadol did in the Beis Hamikdash. In the olden days, in times when we had the Beis Hamikdash, so the highlight of Yom Kippur was not the person davening Musaf, but the Kohen Gadol doing service in the 
Beis Hamikdash. So unfortunately, we don't have that today. So our davening goes and it describes what the Kohen Gadol would do in the Beis Hamikdash. How we would run to this place, to that place. He would slaughter the bull. He would catch the blood. He would then take the blood and bring it to the um, to the Kodesh Hakadoshim, to the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it uh, specifically this way and not that way. And uh, and then and then he would go and. He would slaughter this one, and they, they weren't ready to use the blood yet, so he would give the blood to someone who would stand there, and he would mix it so that the blood wouldn't congeal, because if it becomes congealed, then uh, then, then it can't be uh, spritzed with the finger. And there's a lot of there's a lot of details. There's a lot of details there, and uh, it's definitely worth learning. Uh, no question about that. I'll just point out one interesting thing, which comes up again and again. When the Kohen Gadol would say a vidu, he would say a confession on the bull. So he would say a confession three times. Uh, first time was just for himself, the second time was uh, for him and his family, and the third time was for him and his family, and I believe the rest of the Kohanim. Now, when he would say the vidui, so then he would go and he would say, please Hashem, forgive, uh, forgive, the, uh, forgive for the sins, whether they were unintentional or intentional, whatever the case may be, that were sinned against you and it's terrible, and we ask you to forgive like you wrote in your Holy Torah, on this day will be an atonement for you, to purify you from all of your sins, before Hashem, you will become pure. Now, we then describe how when the Kohen would say, before Hashem, we become pure, that he wouldn't say Hashem in the regular way. He would say it was known as the Shem HaMethorosh. Now, the Shem HaMethorosh is a special name of Hashem, which was not normally said. The people were not supposed to listen to the Kohen when he said that name. So, they would go, and they would not listen to the Kohen So how do you not listen? So I guess you could put your fingers in yours and say, we're not listening, we're not listening. But what they did was, they would go and they would bow down and they would scream, Baruch Shem Kavod Ed, while the Kohen Gadol did this. So that's one of the highlights of the Avod. It's a rather drawn out piece by the Chazan. The Chazan says, Where did all the Ayi guys come from? I don't know, but that's the, uh, that's the Nusuf. That's the way that the chant is done. And it describes there how the, the Kohanim and the nations, they would all fall down on their faces to not hear this Shem HaMaforish, and then they would all scream out, Baruch Shem Kivod we go and we reenact this in the shul. That's why during Musaf there are three times where we bow down and we scream out, Baruch Shem Kivod as if we were there in the base Hamikdash listening to the Kohen Gadol and not wanting to hear him recite the Shem HaMaforish. After the Avod is finished, it then... Uh, you then have this uh, whole section where it says, oh, in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, it was beautiful, and the Kohen Gadol was able to achieve atonement for the entire Jewish people, and we wished we had that, but unfortunately, because of our sins, we don't have that anymore. And then it goes paragraph after paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, describing about how we've sinned, and we don't have that anymore. Finally, after many paragraphs, you get to this story of the Ten Martyrs, which uh, also has to do with our sins, and also that the death of the tzaddikim should be in atonement for us, and that's basically when Musaf comes to an end. Usually, at that point, there's a break. Uh, how long is the break? Well, it depends how much time you have left in the day. Musaf is followed by, or the break is followed by Mincha. Mincha 
surprisingly does not start with Ashrei like it usually does, but we start with Laning. We do have an Ashrei, but that Ashrei is going to be before Ne'ila, uh, the last part of the day. So we have, uh, so we, so we have the Laning, and then the Laning is followed by a very long Haftarah, and that Haftarah is the story of Yonah. And why is the story of Yonah there? Well, the whole story of Yonah has to do with Teshuvah. With Yonah doing Teshuvah, Yonah telling the people of Ninveh to do Teshuvah. So we, so we listen to that story of Yonah. Then we dive in Mincha. And once again, of course, there's going to be, uh, Vidois in the, in, in the, uh, davening of Mincha. And then we come to Ne'ilah. Ne'ilah is, uh, the pinnacle, the highlight of Yom Kippur. It has a special tune. That's, uh, that's used only once a year for, for Ne'ila. And it's, the Aron Kodesh is open. Once the repetition of the Shmonastery of Ne'ila starts, the Aron Kodesh is open and it stays open for the entire Ne'ila. And, uh, Mishnah Bura quotes a saver called Mata Ephraim that, uh, one should remind himself that all of El was, was leading up to Yom Kippur and all of Yom Kippur was leading up to Ne'ila. And this is the moment. The gates are open, and they're going to be open now for another hour, maybe less, maybe more. And that's it. When that when that's over, it's all over. So even if somebody is worn out and they have a headache and they don't feel well and they're not in the mood, they should try to push themselves. They should try to get a second win. Or Yom Kippur, it's already probably your fifth win. But whatever it is, to try to push yourself to do more, to do more, and uh, and to find an inspiration in the davening. Because uh, once Yom Kippur is over, it's all going to be over. Now, circus, we're going to celebrate. We're all going to be happy, but we feel like you know, let's earn that so that uh, so that we feel that we truly do deserve to celebrate. So Neilah is the culmination. That's when it's all coming to an end. Interestingly, the vidui during Neilah is actually much shorter. That's the one part which is shorter. Normally, the vidui has the Asham news, which just goes through Alpha's order, one word each, right? Asham no bagad no gazal no dibar no dofi. But then you have the alchets, which are much much longer. In in uh, in the era, we only have the ashamnus, but all those long sentences of the alchets, which is the much longer part of the confession, is not there in the era. So it goes it goes much faster. There is one very important change to the text. In the Ila, and that is all the times in the Dalin that we mention Kasvenu. Hashem, please be kotev. Please write us in the Book of Life. Well, we're now way past the writing stage. Now everything is being sealed. So, so we change it from Kasvenu to Chasmenu. Please seal us in the book. So like, for example, uh, in Zachreinu L'chaim, in the beginning of we say, Zachreinu L'chaim Melchafetz Ba'chaim, V'chasvenu B'sefer Ha'chaim. We change that to V'chasmenu B'sefer Ha'chaim. In Avinu Malkeinu, also you have a few places where you say, Avinu Malkeinu, Kasveinu Hashem, please write us the Sefer in the book, or the book of uh, Parnas, of uh, Livelihood, the book of Forgiveness, and all those get changed to Chasmenu. Please seal us in the book. The very, very end of Ne'ilah, the Chazan screams out one time, Shema Yisrael, and everyone answers Shema Yisrael. He then says, Baruch Shein Kevod three times. Now, typically what happens is, in Shul, is that the uh, Chazan says, Baruch Shein Kevod Machas and he's supposed to say it three times, but people think that it's one, 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 one. So you have a few people that start to scream out Baruch Shein, they get shushed, then the Chazan says it two more times, and then everybody says, Baruch Shein Kevod Machas three times. The Chazan then says, Hashem Hua Elohim seven times. 
Now, the same people that thought that they're supposed to repeat after the first time that the Chazan said Baruch Shem, usually make the same mistake, and they say Hashem Hu Elokim after the Chazan said it the first time, but the Chazan says seven times, Hashem Hu Elokim, Hashem Hu Elokim, he does that seven times, and then everyone screams out Hashem Hu Elokim, the Chazan then says Kaddish, in the middle of Kaddish we have a Tkir Gedola, the Chazan finishes Kaddish, and that's it. Yom Kippur is over. Yom Kippur is known as Yom HaKadosh, the Holy Day. And uh, the Mishnah describes it as one of the happiest days for the Jewish people. So it can be a hard day, it can be a difficult day, but it also is a very happy day. And hopefully when the evil is over, you feel, Ugh, I could do this for another hour, because it is a very special day. It's a day where, hopefully, by not concentrating on all of our physical needs, we do feel a closeness, and, and uh, ideally one should feel a certain sense of sadness when the day came to an end. And yes, uh, we're hungry and we want to eat and we may even have a headache, but there's a certain closeness that we feel, but we were working on the entire uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur period, and now that's uh, all coming to an end. We scream Hashanah above Yerushalayim, and uh, that's it, we daven marv. Now a person, and we go home, a person should believe that, a person should believe that they are forgiven. In other words, if you've put in the effort, don't continue to doubt yourself, but uh, have faith and believe that uh, Hashem did, in fact, forgive you and don't be depressed about it. Uh, it says that there's a basco, a voice that comes out from heaven, usually we're not privileged to hear it, that says, uh, Go home and eat your uh, food in joy because uh, Hashem is happy with what you did. Uh, if there's no clouds outside, so then we do say, we sanctify the new moon after Mar before we go home. And um, you do need to make Havdalah. You do need to make Havdalah before you eat. Now, Havdalah is interesting. Unless Yom Kippur falls out on a Shabbos, we don't have any basam, we don't have any spices. However, we do light a candle and have a cup of wine or grape juice. The only thing which is unusual and different is that you can't light a regular candle because normally the reason why at the end of Shabbos we light a candle is because fire was created on Sunday, on the first, um, but after the first Shabbos, Hashem taught Adam how to create fire. So we remember that by lighting a candle at the end of Shabbos. However, Yom Kippur, if it falls out like this year on a Wednesday, so then there's no reason to light a candle. However, if one goes and they light a Yurtzeit candle, they light a candle before, it doesn't have to be a Yurtzeit candle, but they light a candle before Yom Kippur begins, that can burn for a good 26 hours. So then, that's called a Ner Sheshavas, a candle that burnt the entire Yom Kippur. And if one has that, they can light the Avdala candle from that and make a Bari Ma'ari Ha'esh on that candle. It is customary that the meal to celebrate the end of Yom Kippur should be a little bit festive. Many people actually have a minute to uh, eat meat at that meal. Also, uh, to light candles, again, not with a bracha, but just to show that it's a festive meal. To, to light to light candles at that uh, at that meal, and then after the meal is over, so it says that it's a good idea to show that I want to go from one mitzvah to the next mitzvah and to start building your sukkah. Now, most people don't have energy to start building their entire sukkah at that point. Plus, it's late; you don't want to wake up the neighbors. But it says that to do something to start the building of the sukkah to get things uh, going in the right direction, whether it's uh, to, to take out a few things or whatever it is, to start the mitzvah of building the sukkah when Yom Kippur is over. I believe that covers all of the main ideas that have to do with Yom Kippur. The time after Yom Kippur becomes a very, very uh, busy time.
In fact, uh, when the Torah talks about the mitzvah of shaking a lulav, so it says, bayom harishon. You should take for yourselves on the first day. Now, that means the first day of Sukkot. But the Gemara nevertheless says that, why does it say the first day? Why don't you say the date? Take for yourself on the 15th of Tisha. Why do you say the first day? So it says the Gemara, because it's the first day that we sin. Because after Yom Kippur, um, on Yom Kippur rather, all of our sins are forgiven. And then after Yom Kippur, people are so busy getting ready for Sukkot that they uh, that they don't have a chance to sin, because very often we only sin when we're bored. So people are so busy taking care of everything, they're busy doing mitzvahs, that they actually don't have a chance to sin. Now, living out of town, so you don't really have a chance to uh, put a lot of effort into taking care of a lulav and an esrog, hadas, maravos, because you just order them and then you go and you uh, pick them up. But in other places, especially uh, once upon a time, people would go and they would uh, have their choice, which esrog they want, and uh, go through buckets full of... Uh, Hadassim, the myrtles, to try to find the ones uh, which, uh, which, which, which uh, seem to be kosher. And then, of course, building the sukkah takes hours and hours. So this, these times coming up are very busy times. I wish everyone a gemar chasima tova, that uh, you get a great uh, seal on Yom Kippur, that everyone gets sealed into the book of life. And uh, hopefully after Yom Kippur is over, there will be a podcast about Sukkis. Thank you so much for listening. This one's a little bit longer than usual, but I wanted to get everything in. Thank you.